Hello, you are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and adult themes and may not be suitable for younger audiences. Um, So chairing this evening will be Tim Hunter. Uh, Tim is a writer, online editor, filmmaker and a massive Doctor Who fan. Uh, And he writes and reviews regularly for City Search. Um, He's been embroidered with a pretty big love affair with cinema and TV for years, uh, so much so that he's even turned his hand at filmmaking himself. Um, And he'll be taking a look at male sexualities on the TV screen. Uh, Joining Tim is Catherine Devaney, uh, a comedy writer, comedian, author, social commentator and broadcaster, who's pretty well known for her work as a columnist with The Age and uh, for her regular appearances on ABC. Um, Catherine lives in an all-male household too with, I believe, five or six men Uh, or boys to men. There are six men and one woman and two other visiting men. (laughs) So so I'm sure she has a lot to deal with, um, with her fair share of men behaving badly in that kind of environment. Uh, So also on board is Mel Campbell. Uh, Mel's a professionally curious popular culturalist, which I don't think is an actual word, Mel, but I made that up for you today. Um, Because it's an excellent descriptor of of someone who's made her career out of finding out what's new uh, and how how we interact with it. Um, Mel has spent her working life as a journalist and editor, uh, and she'll be turning her sharp eye tonight on investigating the relationships between a select few alpha, beta males on the TV. Um, and then boosting the man quota up the end there is Daniel Burt, a comedian, actor, writer and performer uh, whose career ranges from his first TV gig, I believe, with uh, the Australian sketch comedy show Skit House. Um, Don't judge me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and has also seen uh, spent some time in New York where he was an intern um, at The Late Show with David Letterman, I believe. Uh, he's currently in the process of developing his 2010 Melbourne International Comedy Festival show, Yes Man Syndrome, into a book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Um, <laughs> and has, fin- has fingers in a lot of other different pies as well, uh, doing a column for The Age and um, also being a regular correspondent for the 7pm project. Um, so I'll wrap up now and head, hand over to Tim. Uh, but before I do, I'd just like to remind you uh, that tonight's session is all about discussion. So if you have any questions, comments, thoughts have any other uh, personal anecdotes you wanted to share about your interaction with TV guys, um, feel free to pop your hand up and have a chat. Um, everybody's more than open to, uh, to interacting with you guys, so you don't just have to sit there. Um, and one last little bit of housekeeping. Tonight's session will be recorded for a podcast, so if you haven't already, just switch off your phones so that doesn't interfere with that. Um, so without further ado, I'll hand over to Tim Hunter, who will take you through tonight's proceedings. Well, thank you, Sean, and thank you. Oh. <laughs> um, yes, and thanks for, for joining us um, for Men Behaving Badly. Um, back when I was a kid, I think uh, TV was a very innocent, naive place. Um, shows that I was allowed to watch included things like Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, Get Smart, The Brady Bunch, My Three Sons, uh, The Love Boat, The Sullivans, Chips, Starsky and Hutch, The Six Million Dollar Man. Um, no one, especially the men, behaved badly, except maybe the villains or the crooks in, you know, in things like Sarsteen Hutch and The Six Million Dollar Man. Um, but I wasn't actually allowed shows, you know, allowed to watch shows that actually did have men possibly behaving badly, like you know, Number Ninety Six or Cop Shop or um, or even Prisoner. Well, there, that was probably more women behaving badly, but you know, I'm sure there, there were a couple of you know. Um, 
men in there behaving badly as well. So they weren't options. So I kind of grew up thinking that all men were either very wise fathers or long-suffering husbands with magical women as their partners, um, heroes, clever detectives or buffoons. Um, and that's just the way it was because that's all you know that I saw on TV. Um, naturally, of course, the men that I actually grew up with, like my father and my uncles and teachers and, and preachers and, and, and people like that, were none of the above. You know, and they were they were completely separate. There was you know there was reality and there was TV, and that's the way it was. And TV characters weren't real. Um, but I think as I, as I you know as I've grown up, grown up, and as we've all grown up, television and TV drama has grown up along the way as well. And now we've started seeing ourselves on, on TV and that meant, means that we actually see characters with flaws and characters that behave badly. And, and, and then now we're, you know, we're cheering people like Dexter for being a serial killer or we're, you know, we're rooting for the vampires in True Blood. Or, um, you know, and even, even Doctor Who, sort of, you know, as, you know a, a favourite of mine, but you know, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, who was a classic hero character, you know, albeit an eccentric one, um, now in his new, you know, in his revamped incarnation, um, is allowed to have a dark and damaged side and sometimes actually behaves badly himself. Um, and so, yeah, and so here we are in 2011, we've got two and a half men for what that's worth. We've got Family Guy, we've got Californication, we've got things like the Tudors and True Blood. And so we're here to discuss men behaving badly on TV. And I think to get the, the ball rolling, we'll start with Catherine, if she'll put away her knitting. I would, be, I would love to. <laughs> Thanks very much. Give Tim a round of applause. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready, yes. Are we passing over? Okay. <laughs> so um, I was, of course, as you can imagine, kind of amazed that I was asked to um, speak about men behaving badly. Um, but uh, I think that um, then I look back through my body of work in my life and in my writing and um, I realised it probably all started here with this man. And I just want to... Um, I wrote this in um, 2007 uh, and I just would like to share this with you. I've just watched three episodes of the footy show and I feel like Sammy Davis Jr. at a Ku Klux Klan rally, like Danny Minogue at a Mensa convention and like George Pell in 2007. It's offensive, toxic, corrosive, encouraging women to be stupid, shallow and sexist. Sit down, shut up and hang on and ladies, bring a plate. The footy show is nothing more than media-sanctioned misogyny and so much less. Tune in and you'll feel like you've woken up in 1952. A man in a full-body condom... Men dressed as women, girls in bikinis, guys stuffing toilet paper down their jocks, dickheads, wankers and yobs. The few women that I did see were leered at, one called a bitch and another one told to get fucked, both by Sam Newman. I heard the word sheilas and could sense the words poofters, wogs, slopes and spastics were just below the surface. <laughs> Is it the program, the network, the culture of Australian television or just Newman that's so offensive? It's all of them. But Newman really needs to be singled out for his extraordinary contribution to this tragic, puerile, adolescent show that degrades the culture of football, alienates women and teaches boys that females are slaves, trophies or bitches. Newman is vain, ugly, a megalomaniac and a bully. I can't help feeling that deep inside he'd be happy for women to have their brains removed and replaced with a bar, bar fridge. He's a dangerous bloke... <laughs> who's paid a lot of money to defile our culture and undermine our intelligence in the most putative fashions. For any of you who have sat around, surrounded by people laughing at this maggot and found yourself thinking there's something wrong with you, there isn't. There's something wrong with him and them. Okay, so there's it. I think it all kind of started with Sam Newman. I, I kind of... I, 
I didn't even think that I was going, I wasn't monstering him, I wasn't, you know, going and thump on him. I was just describing what I saw. Um, then I went on to later refer to the people that he works with as pigs in suits. Um, the guys who sit rolling their eyes and saying, oh, Sam, are just as bad, they should be called pigs in suits. And that's what I think that the show should be called. So it all seems to kind of surround, it all seems to hover around Channel 9, where I was drawn to write about and the badly behaved men that I saw. Um, this was another, Eddie Everywhere. Um, this is an article uh, entitled Beaconsfield. The most memorable flash of the Beaconsfield mining disaster coverage for me was the moment I saw Eddie Maguire down at the Beaconsfield pub holding a beer and saying, mate, a lot. Like many people, my first thought was, haven't these people been through enough already? <laughs> Carl Stefanovic, apparently I referred to as half man, half food processor. <laughs> apparently I couldn't find where it was, but I was reminded of this. And uh, Jules Lund, uh, bilingual. Um, and, you know, I have referred to him as a professional bogan. Um, he's fluent in sweet mate and settle down boys. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's a very clever move by Noin, as he would pronounce it, to have him, um, you know, being a bogan. He's the bogan's bogan. Um, you know, why say drive when you could say drive? Um, and why, why say behind when you could say behind? And why say happy when you could say stoked? There's, uh, <laughs> there's your, your man, Jules Lund. Um, so, uh, not, no, we're not going to get onto him. Look, I, I did go the stab a lot. And when I look back, it was almost entirely Channel 9. Um, uh, apparently, I wrote, um, uh, I, I, I suggest there should be a caution running along the bottom of the screen at all times, reading, warning, warning, watching Channel 9 causes cultural cancer. Um, <laughs> but I didn't just go Channel 9. I also went the execs. Um, I cannot stress how narrow-minded, gutless, sexist and bigoted your average studio exec is. These, B these BWMs, bogans with money, are the only link in the food chain up from the... Only one link up from the food chain from the creeps who run commercial radio. Basically, you know, rich plumbers and jumped-up accountants. No offence. Um, so, you know, Channel 9 is the station that feminism, multiculturalism and innovation forgot. Um, and I think that we can all agree on that. But I am... I was interested looking over what I wrote, how often Channel 9 got the stump. But it wasn't just um, only Channel 9. Um, this is not James Rain. Uh, David Rain was another man. Now, I don't know whether they're behaving badly, but just kind of being a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> David Rain was originally famous for being James Rain's brother. And when you're famous for being someone's brother, that brother is, and that and that brother is no longer famous, you're stuffed. Or in David's case, you become famous for being a bit of a knob. Okay, a lot of a knob. Keep in mind, this is a show that I did appear quite regularly on. It's probably unethical for, to make fun of David, considering he's severely disabled with a chronic case of foot in mouth disease. But what the hell? I'm an asshole. My favourite of the many celebrated faux pas was David saying he didn't understand what a placebo was but it seemed like it saved people's lives and at any time a drug trial took place, they should use one of these placebo thingies. The drug trial researcher uh, they were interviewing explained that a placebo was an inactive agent. Poor Dave was still stumped <laughs> until Kim, his co-host, said, a pretend drug. <laughs> 
Uh, David Rain on television is positive discrimination in action and a triumph for idiots everywhere. <laughs> now, um, this was the one that really, um, I think, kind of nailed it in the coffin uh, that, you know, Channel 9, if you're looking about men behaving badly, look no further. Two and a half men is the perfect title because there's no women in it. Sure, there's beauty queens, fat ladies, mean mothers, pushy bitches, ex-wives, bunny boilers, dumb blondes and whores. But no female characters, just caricatures. No women, just slaves, trophies and bitches. I've used that line before once. I used it to describe the footy show's treatment of women. But the similarities do not end there. Two and a Half Men is also a morally bankrupt orgy of chauvinism and media-sanctioned misogyny. Both shows are on Channel 9. This show is a vehicle for chauvinists, a chauvinist creep who sees women as only potential conquests, stalkers waiting to happen, clingy nesters, conniving, demanding or insane. He's surrounded by people covertly enabling his behaviour of undermining and devaluing women by rolling their eyes and saying things like, oh, Sam, I mean, oh, Charlie, just like the viewers. Charlie's not a ladies' man. He's a Casanova. He's not a Casanova and he's not a playboy. He's a woman-hating sexual predator. The other one-and-a-half men who live in the house are Charlie's uptight pussy-whip brother, Alan, and Alan's 11-year-old annoying brat, Jake. The men have a fat, sexless housekeeper, psychotic exes, a neurotic mother and a stream of Madonnas and whores. And that's all the show's about. Sure, technically it's a comedy. Doesn't mean it's funny. Doesn't mean it's not incredibly dangerous as it administers the, dog, the pill in the dog food to more than a million Australians every night. Immunising as many people as possible against the potentially devastating infection of valuing women as individuals for their worth. Relentlessly sexually objectifying, devaluing, undermining, dehumanising or demonising them. Sure, you can't immunise everyone, but you can create herd immunity. The vaccination of a significant percentage of her herd to make a chain of infection the infection being treating women with dignity, equality and respect, almost impossible. <coughs> I kept watching to unlock the mystery of how this ugly, mean, manipulative show is not only on telly, but on telly seven times a week. At some times, it was on 11 times a week. I'm sure you swallow the internal logic that it all makes sense. It made me sick. Two and a Half Men is brought to you by the, brother of, the Brotherhood of Fucked Up Assholes. Laugh because it's funny, funny because it's true, true that it's sad, sad that alcohol comes with an adv advice to drink responsibly, cigarettes with a warning of health implications, but two and a half men is the drink that date rape drug is slipped into. I'm not blaming men. I'm exposing anyone who supports this show. The show is so insidious, it wouldn't be much of a stretch to consider it a human rights abuse. Okay, so that's kind of where I ended up. And I was looking back on all this night, I wondered why I was so angry, why Channel 9 was so singled out. And um, I remembered something. <laughs> it was the bear without pants. It was Humphrey Bear, who was my first true love. And I loved Humphrey. I loved him so much. When Humphrey, when the show finished, I would cry. And I don't know whether I loved him because he was wordless. 
I don't know whether I loved him because he was wearing a tartan waistcoat. I don't know whether he, I loved him because he was not wearing any pants. But I did love him. And I loved him so much. I had, I had a grandmother who was um, absolutely, totally stone deaf. And she took me to see him once at Southland. And she talked about holding me up on the railings. And she could feel, she knew when, when Humphrey had come out because she could feel my heart beating through my hand. And I loved Humphrey. And I expected so much better from the men on Channel 9 because this was my first true love. And I think that's what made me angry. Now, when I got my um, first job at Channel 9 writing, I was writing for a show called... I was actually writing on a pilot for Tim Ferguson after Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, and it was called Girl Friday. And um, it didn't end up getting up, but um, I, I got to work at Channel 9, and it had been such an important part of my childhood. I'd sent um, competition um, uh, entries into there. You know, we, we watched Channel 9 a lot. Anybody of my age group, I'm 43, I know, hard to believe, um, but um, knows the postcode to Richmond. Tim? That's because we all knew it. it was just so many times we heard that to send in your entry forms for competitions. 3121. So I got to Channel 9 and finally I was at 22 Benigo Street, Richmond 3121. And I walked in and I walked along the corridors and I saw all of these familiar faces, these massive big portraits which were about the size of, you know, two fridges. There's Sir Eric Pierce. Um, there's Brian Naylor, um, there's uh, Tony Barber and Garnish. <laughs> it's actually Elise Pat Platt, but who cares? Um, and here is Glenn Ridge and Garnish. That's Nikki Buckley, who cares? Um, and walked along and was looking at these people and they were so familiar to me. They felt like family. And then I came across this face and I remember seeing that face and it was very big and it was at the end of the hall and it was as big as the other. And I'd seen these other people that seemed so familiar and like family, but I actually looked at this face and I was so overwhelmed, well, overwhelmed with warmth and happiness and familiarity. For a moment, I thought it was my mother, <laughs> which is true. But I, I had watched da Double Take Daryl, or Dead Eye Daryl, as I like to call him. Double Take, because... Remember when he would host the Logies, but then he would win a Logie and then he would do this thing <laughs> pretending like he didn't know? He fucking knew. So, but I, I loved Daryl. I, I loved Daryl. I loved Daryl and Ozzy. Cartoon Corner, or as we called it, after school hours care. I remember lying next to the digital alarm clock waiting for it to click over till four o'clock because that was when Daryl and Ozzy was on. And... I don't know whether it was a good show, but look at that hair. But um, not only that, but the inventor of the mullet. You know, that, that is total uh, sherbet, 1975, I reckon. But also versatile. They could go, he could go on either side of Aussie, see, left and right. <laughs> a lot of people say he wasn't, but he was, okay? And, uh, and look, a bit of an intellectual in the 80s. Note the skivvy. So there was... And I really did love him, but you've got to realise I was in primary school when it was Cartoon Corner, so we watched them after school, and then we were like older primary school, and Hey Hey It's Saturday was on in the morning. It was on at 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock when our parents wanted to sleep in. There would be the Thunderbirds, there would be the Jetsons, and then there'd be 
Hey Hey. And it was great fun. It was actually quite experimental back then. And it was the show that we watched um, when we were too young to kind of go out on a Saturday night because then it became, it was on a Saturday night, Sausage Fest again. Um, and I, I think, you know, I look at how that show morphed and I think about what it could have been. And I just want to share with you uh, an article that uh, was published in 2009. Are you fucking serious? They're bringing back Hey Hey at Saturday? If that is not a blatant attempt for Channel 9 to attract my attention, I don't know what is. Where do I start? Bump off Loonig and give me the whole page for this one. <laughs> what are they thinking? And when I say they, I mean my friends at Channel 9. And when I say friends, I mean blokes who would gladly rape and kill me as halftime entertainment at the grand final or any occasion, event or gathering for a laugh. And simulcasted with Eddie McGuire in the studio and Steve Jacobs on the ground. Yeah, Eddie, the crown down here is electric. Traditionally, what happens on the footy trip stays on the footy trip. But this year, Nine has a world first premiere. Who needs car carols by candlelight when we've got Devon on a spit after a night with a state of origin all codes dream peams, dream, dream pack sex team? After the break, Lavinia with the weather. <laughs> But seriously, it's about time someone exhumed and resuscitated the festering corpse of Hey Hey. <laughs> Something had to be done about the staggering deficit of blokey, cobbled up, camp concert style content on television and the shortage of middle-aged white men with relevance deprivation on our screens. <laughs> hey Hey ran for 27 years. Haven't we suffered enough? Apparently a Facebook page calling for the show's re re return has 197,000 followers, which may sound impressive until you realise they're all Daryl Summers. Hey, hey. And Daryl Summers is Hey, Hey's host. Host as in organism that is invaded by a virus on which parasites live. <laughs> the show was axed in 1999 despite the noisy protests of Daryl's mum. <laughs> Hey Hey was fine for what it was, an alternative to having a conversation with your family. But it wasn't even dated, it, but it was even dated back in 1999 when it was axed. Anything could happen, and generally didn't. The words improvised, unscripted, and flying by the set of their pants were used as a code for sloppy, cheap, and why prepare research, rehearse, and plan when you could just throw starving egos into a studio and let their delusion of talent do the work, being fueled by the promise of a Logie being called a legend over a cranny after the show or a hand job from one of the makeup girls. <laughs> then I, Daryl, will be joined by Red being a sarcastic, sarcastic prick, Wilbur being a smart ass, Molly sucking up to anything with a whiff of the next big thing, Shane Bourne doing jokes beginning with the line, a couple of Sheilas walked into a bar, and John Blackman making us think what happened in the 70s should stay in the 70s, Mrs McGillicuddy, anyone. Well, at least the mediocrity of the performers made the Red Faces contestants look good. So too segments like What Cheeses Me Off and personalities like Plucker Duck. Plucker, get it? Sounds a bit like... <laughs> Which reminds me, I wonder if Jackie McDonald is still alive. Hey, hey, it's the token woman. <laughs> Lavinia Nixon, Denise Drysdale, Joe Beth Taylor. The occasional presence of any woman on Hey, Hey was amplified by their unashamed absence. What does it say about Dickie Knee... A hat and a wig on a stick. It got more airtime than any performer with a vagina on Australia's longest-running light entertainment show. Light entertainment is what you call comedy when the jokes don't work. Variety is what you call a program when you're not sure what it is. And family entertainment is a genre it's labelled if you want to sell station wagons, nappies and lawnmowers. 
How do I know? I wrote for IMT with Frankie J Holden, All Star Squares and The Wedge. I'm not proud of it. I had to pay the car rego. This isn't nostalgia. It's creative paralysis and corporate cannibalism. Okay, so here's the board game too. Not a woman in sight. You know, man, man, another man, another man, man with its hand up a fucking bloody puppet, another man, man inside a suit, and a man holding a stick being another man. Okay, I see penis people. All right, so here's the, the basic thing. What They have acted badly. They've behaved very badly. And the worst thing that they've done is not allow women on the screens. And when, but when they do, they're only allowed, there's very few of them and they're only allowed to act certain ways, wear certain things and, um, and act in a certain way. And that's the worst thing that they've done. And, and I suppose the reason that I am so kind of hurt about it is because I loved them. And I thought about the men that I loved um, from my early days watching television, not just Daryl Summers. And so I've got, some, I've got some clips tonight and I haven't seen any of these um, clips at all for over 30 years. So I wanted to share with you some of my... It wasn't just Humphrey and it wasn't just Daryl Summers. It was the men who set the bar very high that made me expect more from men on television than what they've dished up. OK, Jay, first one. She came to me once with a sore throat. Oh, she didn't really look. Like examining her tonsils, but she didn't understand why she had to take off her clothes. It's a woman all over. Best place for him to be. Night, guys. I've left a call for 1967. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, uh. Stop. Can we pause? Hawkeye. Who didn't love Hawkeye? I adored him. I watched MASH every single night it was on and more. He was irreverent, he was funny, he was caring, he was a maverick and he was a drunk. And we loved him. And I, I, I grew up thinking when I was a little girl, that is the kind of guy I want to marry when I grow up. Can we keep rolling with that one? Let's see what else. Uh, finest kind. Just like Mother used to make. You know, we got to do it someday. Throw away all the guns and invite all the jokers from the north and the south in here to a cocktail party. Last man standing on his feet at the end wins the war. Guys got mail. Hawkeye. Trapper. I don't feel like mail. Go ahead, open it. They can't draft you again. Bad news from my wife. She still loves me. Would you believe this? She still thinks I got sent to Korea as part of some secret plot to cheat on her. Well, didn't you? Yeah, but how did she figure it out? <laughs> hey, ho, John. Come here. Sit down. I got a letter from Dean Lodge. Is that a good place to stay? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the head of my alma mater. Listen to this. Dear Hawkeye, as dean of the college, I naturally remember you very well. After my first autopsy, I mailed him a nervous system. <laughs> your request to winter the Korean boy Hojan seems one of your nobler gestures. And since his academic record meets our requirements, we will be pleased to accept him this fall, provided you can get him here and also send me $1,000 tuition before the 15th. It was good hearing from you. If you do to the Army what you did to this college, America is finished. Yours is etc., etc. Hot dog! 
Hey, that's terrific. How can I ever thank you? You just go back there and become the best possible you you can. I go tell my folks. Okay. Wasn't he beautiful? What a beautiful man. Okay, next one, next blast from the past. This is like going through a list of my old lovers. So, Hawkeye. You all set, Rich? Yeah, almost. Oh. Well, uh, you better get going if she think you're not coming. Now, remember, when she twists her hair, that's a sign she wants a French kiss, and she loves it when you blow in her ear. All right, but, but tell me what you did. Uh, so I don't do exactly the same thing. Otherwise, it might look kind of suspicious, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, maybe you got a point. Okay, let me think. Uh, first, they turn down the lights, uh-huh. put on my pair by the platters, Put arm around back of couch, so it's around her. Oh, uh, which arm? Well, that depends on what side of the couch you're sitting on. If you're right-handed, you sit on the left side, or vice versa. So you keep your strongest hand free. Right. And uh, I brought this just in case. What are you crazy? It's a brassiere closed by hooks. So? Well, hooks are hard to open. Did you ever take out a girl with hooks? Well, uh, no. All my girls had uh, buttons. Buttons? Rich, it's either snaps or hooks. Oh, well, I meant snaps. Well, you better practice just in case. Practice? Yeah. You don't see open sesame and it unhooks. Well, I like it to be romantic. I'm just going to do it my way, all right? I'm going. Okay. I didn't know I was dealing with Cary Grant. Oh, hi, Fonzie. Oh, look what some jerk left on the radiator. Boy, oh boy, there's sure some dodos around here. We love Richie, but my heart belonged to Potsy. Anyone else here, hand belong for, their heart belonged to Potsy? I loved him. He was so sweet. He was so ingenious. He was so, he was just, he was the sweetest sweetheart in the world. And when I was about seven or eight, I would, I would dress up and stand in my front yard with um, a, um, a, a jumper tied around my neck. And people would ask me what I was doing. And I'd say, I'm waiting for Potsy to to pick me up and take me out on a date. And I, I loved him and I still, like, seeing that again brings up those feelings of, of, of the men that I was presented with and the men that I loved. Next one, Jay. Well, you know, what is it that I could uh, need or use more than money? Know-how. Enough to put a new roof on that shed. It had been built proper and never caved in. I bought this business for cash, and I'd no sooner turned the money over than the last snows of winter came, and they crashed in the roof. And I'll build your roof. It'll support under any snow. For a plow and seed. That's right. And uh, we'll be supplying the material. Well, you will. Well, in that case, my lad, I'll be needing a bit more on my side to make the bargain even. I'm uh, freighting in some sacks of grain from Mankato. You'd be stacking those in the shed, and neatly, too. Consider it done. Satisfy me on one thing more, and we can shake hands on it. I see you working at Hanson's every day. How are you going to get loose to work for me? Already arranged for that. Work for you in the morning, work for Hanson in the afternoon. You're biting off a big piece. And I'll be after wanting this done in uh, three weeks. It'll be done. Well, saying's one thing, but 
Doing's another. You got my word on it. <laughs> but if something goes wrong now, your word is not going to keep the rain out of my shed. I'm thinking I'll be needing a bit of collateral. Like what? I see you driving a fair yoke of oxen. Now, just keep it businesslike. You sign a chattel mortgage, leaving the animals to me in case you don't do the work as promised. Now, no offense, Ingalls, no, no offense meant at all. Just that being burned once, you fear the fire. I was a believing man once until a shed sworn to be sound fell down. I build a roof and stack the grain. In three weeks. In three weeks. My hand on it. And I hope you'll be keeping your promise. What show is that? Little House on the Prairie. He was the father, he was the fantasy father we all wanted. Never blew his stack, never drunk, was beautiful with his wife, beautiful with his daughters, can do, kind of part Shirley Strawn, part Nelson Mandela. <laughs> and I just remember growing up going, I wish he was my dad. This is why I expected so much better. And last one, Jay. And these guys. The cider of old England. Longbow, strong as your thirst. <laughs> That's my cider. <laughs> and that's my arrow. The goodies. Sweet, funny, irreverent, never violent, never rude, never mean. They loved cats. They were a little bit frightened of things. This is why I expected better. So I know this is about men behaving badly, but I couldn't let it pass without showing you the men that have behaved so well on television, which have been the compare and contrast, which has left us with a bunch of maggots and you know, on telly that make us so wild. People often um, accuse me of being a male hater and anyone who knows me closely and can re you know, has ever read or, or, or had any contact with me know how untrue that is and how much I love men, which makes it so hard for me to see men behaving badly on television. I don't hate men at all, I love them, but I do hate homophobes, racists, misogynists, maggots and creeps. So. Let us all move into a wonderful wide world where we see more, less behave, men behaving badly on telly and more men behaving well. Thank you. Ah, well, thank you, Catherine. Now, does anyone, quickly before I get stuck into my little spiel, does anyone have any comments or questions? Absolutely perpetuating the stereotype. It's the it's the 
It's the drink that the date rape drug is slipped into. And you see that a lot. You can see it with religion too. The way that they'll kind of like, they'll, 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 they'll just put enough in there to um, create some kind of substance or something kind of virtuous or something worthwhile and then just spike it with the information that it wants to program people to think a certain way and to think that that is okay. Anyone else got any other observations, comments, questions? Panel, any other sort of points? Any, anything, bring up any sort of long f forgotten oh, memories? Two and a half men's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, I've you never, would. I've never watched it and I've never got it, and I just, you know, the ads are enough to drive me away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's just like, oh, look, I'd rather cut off my left wing, <laughs> you know, than watch that. But, um, but that's, you know. Yeah, but it's, I will say that Catherine hated Two and a Half Men for others. Oh, yeah. You were, were, were trailblazing. And, and Footy Show. I remember yeah. when I wrote about the Footy Show, people, I was overwhelmed with response, like, overwhelmed. No one has ever written anything like that before. They, there's something about the, oh, you know, they're, they're, what are they, lovable rogues, you know, pants men, colourful characters, you know, rough diamonds with a heart of gold. And it's just like, no, no. I just see, I see sexists, I see racists, I see maggots, I see chauvinists, <laughs> I see creeps. That's all I see. I can't see mm. anything good in that at all. So, and it does make me sad because men are just so much better than that. And we, we sort of saw the same thing with, um, with the return of Hey Hey It's Saturday. I mean, they first came back with a couple of, you know, sort of, you know, reunion specials and, you know, that rated through the roof, probably because of that nostalgia factor. Mm. Um, and then they, you know, Channel 9 sort of thought, oh, we've gone to something here, let's commission a whole series. Um, and then suddenly, the, you know, sort of the wheels started falling off the wagon and, you know, sort of they weren't getting the ratings and the ratings were dropping. And then suddenly Channel 9 were going, oh, no, we're going to cut it in half. We're only going to, you know, show you, we've just commissioned 20 episodes. We're only going to show you 13 now and give you the other seven later. And, you know, and since then it's kind of just disappeared, thankfully. Um, because, you know, I think you're right, you know, sort of, you know, back when we were growing up, it was a lot, you know, more relevant or a lot easier. Now, it's just like this, you know, group of middle-aged men desperately trying to, you know, they're all having a midlife crisis on screen. It is, and we have moved, you know, like, the, you know, this, what we see on the screen reflects, but also it can really mould, you know, where we're at. And we really do have to hold the images responsible and we do have to push for more diversity because if you don't push, nothing's really going to happen. I mean, if you just, like... Uh, with the, the live in the studio that I did about women, you know, we just went through just showing how much women are garnish. And if you, like, you know, would go through, I remember one night watching the ABC and tweeting out, okay, so Spicks and Sex, Specs, uh, five men, two women, the Gruen Transfer, eight men, one woman, uh, the Chaser, five, five men, you know, like there's just... They have a charter for diversity and, and to reflect the, you know, to be pioneering and innovative and to reflect the society that we're living in. And commercial television can kind of do what it wants, but they actually... But you, you say stuff like that and they go, oh, you're just jealous. It's like, no, I'm just holding up a light and showing you guys what's going on. I mean, if you um, subverted the genders on any of these things, if you had a panel that had... You know, you have the the circle, which has got you know four women on. That's a women's show, but a show with four men on it is just a show. Mm. 
you know, and time and time and time again, you'd see the panel do it, you'd see Rove do it, you'd see Q&A do it. And they just, like, we, just, we are just so used to a show, like, hey, hey, what is it, seven or eight men, basically, occasionally the odd female. If that was seven women and, and the odd guy, that'd be a women's show. Mm. And the other thing about Hey Hey as well, that, you know, that, that really, I think, you know, um, displayed how, you know, antediluvian it was, was, you know, sort of when in, in the Red Faces, you know, sort of uh, skipped the famous one where, the, where, where it was the, the guys blacking up and mm. doing black and white minstrel, you know, in 2010. Mm. And, you know, there was all this outrage and Daryl Summers was, oh, no, it's all just part of, you know, fun. It just shows you how, you know, sort of far behind or, mm. you know, sort of how stuck in that, you know, in mm. that rut from the late, you know, mm. late 70s and 80s that, you know, that they were in. So, um, yeah, so... And, yeah, more evidence that, you know, thank goodness that AA just lives in our memories now. Mm. Um, well, hopefully it still <laughs> does and hasn't yeah. been sort of, you know, um, you know sort of destroyed because yeah. um, those memories can be, can be precious. Um, which kind of leads on to, to, to me and my little bit because I'm going to be talking about, um, about men behaving badly and, and gay men, I suppose, on television and the representation of gay men. And, you know, sort of it's, um, it's kind of interesting that, you know... After years of being, you know, either the comic relief, as you know, Tim Brooke Taylor was in that clip from the goodies, then, or the victim, or even the villain, that um, that suddenly gay characters are the uh, the t- you know TV's new positive role model. You know, they don't have time to behave badly because they're too busy being good and clean and squeaky and and sexless. But and we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later. But I just thought I'd start with um, with a clip that you know will probably bring a smile to, or hopefully bring a smile to most people's faces here, um, from you know a show that that's that you know that's very popular at the moment and and has you know a couple of, of strong gay characters that um and no one actually is blinking an eyelid and when this you know first screened on 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 10 in prime time to, you know sort of um space no one batted an eyelid there were no you know bob Caddy didn't even raise an eyelid um so uh, but yeah so we'll just play that clip thanks jay Forever, you make me 
<laughs> See, now, isn't it just, it's just one of those clips that you just can't help smiling at and, and just sort of just loving because it's, you know, well, for me, I suppose, you know, if I was, a, you know, if I'd seen that as I was a teenager struggling with sexuality, um, that would have been so affirming and so, you know, and, and, and so powerful to sort of see not only, you know, sort of Kurt as a gay character being accepted by, you know, another gay character, but being serenaded in front of all these other straight boys and he was completely, and it was fine and there was no, you know, no problem, no issue whatsoever. Um, and yes, it's cheesy and yes, it's glee and yes, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and there are glee lovers and there are glee haters. Um, but I think, you know, sort of, that, that, you know, that scene in particular, I mean, the show itself, but that scene in particular breaks so much ground, even in, in 2011, that we can have, you know, a scene like that in a mainstream American um, TV show shown on primetime television, and, and, it's, and it's deemed acceptable and it's deemed fine. In fact, it's, you know, it's, it's more than fine and it should be more than fine. Um, and I think that, that even under, and we'll sort of, I'll touch on this a bit later, but even the... Um, the, the undercurrent there of, you know, of Blaine, you know, sort of Darren Chris's character Blaine singing and serenading Kurt and sort of saying, you know, talking about, you know, b being his teenage dream in skid-tight jeans. There's an overt sexuality there. It's sort of like there's no mistake that, you know, what's going on. And, um, and Kurt certainly picks up on that as well. And, and it's, you know, and it's, it's one of those rare moments where, you know, sort of where gay sexuality is actually allowed a little bit of space on TV. But I'll, I'll kind of touch on that, you know, a little bit later as well because um, we are, you know, it is great to see all of these, you know, characters, you know, gay characters in TV. And, look, you know, you can reel them, reel them off very quickly. I mean, you've got in United States of Tara, we've got, um, you know, sort of Tara's son, Marshall, who's, who's quite comfortably comes out. And he's actually, you know what, he's actually... You know, sort of a beacon, of, a beacon of normality in a sea of dysfunction. You know, and this is you know one of the interesting twists in gay characters is that you know these are the ones that are actually all you know sort of being presented as normal or, or well adjusted. I mean, looking at you know talking about Glee again, it's you know Kurt and Blaine have got themselves sorted out. They know exactly who they are and what they're doing, and they're comfortable and proud of that. It's the other characters like Finn and like Puck who are confused and they don't know who they love, and you know they so they're cheating around and they're doing this and they're doing that. And Mr. Shu doesn't know what he what, what he wants either. Does he want a Broadway show? Does he want to you know still teach at you know sort of at the school? And so it's it's the gay guys that have got their shit together. It's all the straight guys that don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, Ugly Betty is another one with Justin. You know, Ugly Betty's nephew. You know, sort of. And, you know, everyone pegged it from, you know, very early on in the episodes that, you know, this kid was going to be gay. And, yes, look, you know, he perpetuated a number of stereotypes that, you know, that he loved fashion, he was a little bit camp and stuff. But he also, you know, it, again, it was a positive reinforcing role model for, for teenage boys. Um, Will and Grace, I suppose, is, is, is a place where it kind of started, where it was a sitcom about two gay men. I mean, yes, they were gay best friends, um, so they didn't have a sexual relationship. But, you know, sort of... Um, and that, that, that was kind of like the, the, I suppose, you know, sort of the change, you know, between them, you know, gay characters being the, the token, you know, um, 
um, you know, comic relief into, you know, they, they were, you know, the lead runners. They weren't just the side characters, like, you know, even like the gay couple in Desperate Housewives. They were, you know, sort of, they were front and centre and it was their relationship. And it was actually Karen, you know, sort of, you know, sort of the, the very camp best friend, not even Grace, but Ka well, Grace actually behaved badly as well. But it was the women that were behaving badly and they, again, were the beacons of, of positivity and, you know, and, yeah, you know, being a bit cheeky and a bit naughty, but that was okay. Um, you know, and then you've got, um, you know, you've also got Modern Family, um, where we've got Cam and Mitchell, who are, you know, sort of just treated as, a, you know, another part of, of this, you know, very complex, dysfunctional family. What's nice about Cam and Mitchell is that they have their own dysfunctions as well, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of Cam, um, you know, Mitchell, you know, sort of is not very good at displaying affection, you know, and there was that whole debate about Modern Family and about the gay couple. Yes, they were, you know, gay couple. They had an on-screen relationship. They'd adopted this baby, but they didn't have a you know an on-screen sexual relationship. And they, and so they actually the show itself made a big point about having them you know have a you know they did a whole episode about you know so why Cam and Mitchell didn't kiss, and it was because you know you know sort of um, Mitchell was brought up you know not to show any public displays of affection. So you know sort of it, and that was kind of a, a nice self self aware moment about sort of you know challenging those kind of you know mores in. You know, in in sort of um, in, in gay characters on TV and stuff, we've also got um, brothers and sisters. We've got um, Kevin and Scotty. Um, now that's Kevin and Scotty there on the right. Um, Kevin is you know the gay brother in in the um, in the Walker household. And again, he's the one that most most of the the other siblings go to for advice. He's the one who sort of you know more often than not is the, the font of all knowledge and wisdom and stuff. Um, and you know, he again, though he's he's human, he's flawed. He's got his you know a few little issues of his own and stuff as well. But there's um, there was an episode just in the last series where um, it was revealed that Scotty his, um, had had an affair with one of the waiters in the restaurant, um, and Kevin didn't find out till later, um, and behaved very badly indeed. He actually got very jealous and you know sort of I think hit a waiter, um, which wasn't the waiter that Scotty had had the affair with. There he is having a little hissy fit. Um, but, you know, and, and in that show, Nora, um, Sarah, um, Sally um, Field's character, was, um, was presenting her radio show about marriages and about perfect couples and stuff like that. And she actually, you know, put them up as, you know, sort of Scotty and, and Kevin as, you know, sort of the perfect couple, the paragon of, of, you know, the best relationship that any of her family or friends had ever had. So, again, you know, sort of here we have, you know, again, having more really positive gay role models. Um, which I think is really interesting. And that's just a US television. Um, and that's really interesting coming from what is, you know, and that, most of that is actually quite, you know, sort of mainstream um, TV. Um, and it's interesting coming from such a conservative country as America. Um, in Australia, we don't have quite as many gay characters on TV. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, number 96 was groundbreaking in its time for having one of the first openly gay characters. Um, GP, back in the early 90s, I don't know whether anyone remembers GP on the ABC, you know, sort of they introduced a gay, a gay doctor and he was, you know, sort of, you know, he was openly gay and he was actually allowed to have a relationship. And I actually think we got to see them in bed together. Shock horror. <laughs> Um, but um, but since then we actually haven't we don't actually have that much. Winners and losers has just finished, and we had Jonathan, who was um, Virginia Gay's character's best friend, her, her gay bestie. Um, again, he was kind of fun, and he was camp, and you know, sort of and good looking, and you know, always the life of the party. He had a partner, but they had problems. 
you know, and we didn't actually get to see his partner until the last two episodes, actually, which was kind of interesting. So he was only ever referred to. But again, you know, a fairly sexless relationship. Um, Offspring, you know, the last season of Offspring had um, had Mick's gay brother turn up. I think his name was Andrew. Um, you know, and he was he was not a he was not a raging gay queen or anything like that. He was just, you know owned a wine shop. He had a goatee. He looked you know you know if we weren't told he was gay, you wouldn't know. Um, and he, you know, he then went on to sort of um, to donate sperm so that that Mick and um, and um, Billy could have a child together. Um, Neighbours have got a gay character at the moment. They're about he's about to get a love interest. Um, that will be actually really interesting to see whether um, you know whether we actually get to see you know sort of the, these two gay characters on Neighbours um, in a primetime soap. You know, sort of a G-rated primetime soap. You know, get down and dirty. I'm guessing not. Um, I'm guessing it'll be just lots of angst and lots of like, oh, but does he really love me? But, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Pact of the Rafters, while it's, you know, that's full of men. Actually, there was an article on The Green Guy today about Pact of the Rafters and, and how, it's a represent, you know, how it's representing, you know, sort of ordinary, you know, sort of blokes. But, yeah, they're ordinary straight blokes. I think the only gay character we had in Pact of the Rafters was, a, you know, a, a, a subplot with, with Carbo, um, you know, where you know, so a girl that he met thought that he was gay because he was a florist or something like that. Not, not a great representation, I have to say, um, which is a bit of a shame. We also had a couple of years ago that SBS series, The Circuit, which was actually quite brave. That was the one with Aaron Pedersen in it, and it was set in the Alice. And they actually had... There was a gay couple in that. And not only was it a mixed-race one, like there was a, a, you know, an Anglo guy and an Indigenous guy in this relationship, but there was also domestic violence in that. So that was quite brave. Um, but again, that was SBS, so that's you know probably... Not a bad thing. We're still yet to get Outland, um, which is an ABC series, which is about a, a, a gay science fiction fan club, um, and it's a, a I think it's a six part mini a six part um, sitcom series um, that is you know that the ABC have finished producing. We've still just got to see it. So I think we'll see lots of gay men behaving badly there. Um, but other than that, you know, the UK is not being great with it. The, um, sorry, the Australia is not being great with that. The UK, on the other hand, has had plenty of, of gay characters in its, you know, in its soaps and things like Coronation Street and EastEnders and stuff. Um, this Life, back from the mid-90s, had Warren, who was you know, an openly gay man who would you know, go off and have you know, indiscriminate sex all over the place. Skins is a, is a groundbreaking show that deals with teens and sexuality and lots of, of gay characters. Shameless, one of the, you know, I don't know whether anyone's familiar with Shameless, but, you know, there's the, the, the gay son who's, you know, he's, he's out stealing and doing all sorts of naughty things, so he's, you know, kind of a, a glitch on the radar there as well. But, I mean, these are UK shows that, you know, push the boundaries. Queer as Folk, of course, you know, that Russell T Davies started back in, in the late 90s. Um, you know, was sort of, that was, you know, such a, a benchmark for, you know, representation of gay characters on TV because, you know, not only did we see them interact with each other and actually have social lives and domestic lives, but we actually saw them having sex as well, um, which was interesting. And, you know, and then, you know, then Russell T Davies, you know, about five or six years later, um, started producing, well, yeah, he was the one who revived Doctor Who. And, you know, surprise, surprise, in the middle of, of that you know revision of Doctor Who, we've got Captain Jack coming in as the the, the omnisexual you know bisexual time time agent who you know sort of was quite open about his sexuality and again no one blinked an eye you know no one cared that he was you know he was omnisexual and he you know he was such a popular character that he got his own spin-off series Torchwood and I'll talk a little bit more about Torchwood later. Um, so and, and he, he's kind of naughty, but he's charming and he's, he's sexy and he, you know and you know he's, he kind of falls into that hero uber hero ca- ca- uh, category as well. 
Um, but the, you know, so we don't get many, too many gay characters being evil. One character that we have had recently, though, is in Downton Abbey, um, which is Thomas the Manservant, um, <coughs> who's, um, who's this great boo-hiss kind of pantomime, you know, sort of scheming valet, you know, sort of in, you know, downstairs at Downton Abbey. Um, and I think in, in, the first, in the first episode, we actually get to see him at work. And, um, and I'll, we'll actually show you a clip from, from that. And this is Thomas behaving very badly. Well, you, you know how I'm fixed. I have to have an entrance. If it means going to New York to find it. What about me? You. You will wish me well. You said you'd find me a job if I wanted to me. Do you? I want to be a valet. I'm sick of being a footman. Yeah, Thomas, I don't need a valet. I thought you were getting rid of the new one here. Well, I've done it, but I'm not sure Carson's going to let me take over. I want to be with you. season, you would not that against me, surely. Now, what did I have to? And who will leave a greedy footman over the words of a duke? If you're not careful, you'll end up behind bars. I've got proof. Hmm. You mean these? And that kind of sets, you know, sets Thomas up for the, you know, the scheming, you know, sort of manservant for the rest of the season. And at the end, I, I don't know how many of you have watched Downton Abbey, but at the end of the season, he actually goes off to, you know, sort of to, to be a nurse in World War One, so he can get, you know, sort of. But he's always scheming. He's always, as you can see in that clip, he's he's really, you know, he's really hungry for, you know, for, 
promotion and you know he's he, yeah he's um, a really interesting character um, but having said all of that and even you know even given that that you know sort of had a gay kiss and stuff that you know gay sex on tv is a completely different story um, you know as I sort of said before you know most gay characters are actually quite sexless and I think it's interesting because you know sort of it's like you know if the um, if they, were, if they were to have sex, that would make them more real gay, and we don't want that on, on you know, current primetime TV. Um, Queer as Folk, of course, broke that mould with, you know, having a lot of gay sex, but then that was on, you know, sort of on a... That wasn't on the BBC, that was on, you know, sort of um, Channel 4, I think, and it was on a very late time. Um, you know, we can, you know, I think... I remember back in the early 90s with Melrose Place and, and, and Matt, the token gay character, you know, there was this, all these big hoo-ha about, oh, Matt gets his first kiss, you know, with a man, and... It was a shit kiss, you know. <laughs> we didn't we didn't even see them lock lips, you know. It was just like a head moving in and you know, sort of moving out, and and that was it. And you know, and there was um, you know, um, I forgot the actor's name now. I'm um, Doug Savant, sort of looking a little bit shocked. Um, and that was all we got, um, you know. We don't actually get much sex. I mean, I kind of think that if, if David Duchovny, you know, wouldn't have as much sex in Californication as he does. If he was a gay character, you know, it, well, it'd be a completely different show as well. But I think that's kind of interesting. Um, it's also really interesting that, as I mentioned before, it's the cable channels, especially in the US, that are pushing these kind of boundaries and stuff. You know, with shows like um, True Blood, for instance, and and um, and Game of Thrones and Spartacus and, and things like that. Um, but again, you know, one of the interesting things here is that that all, you know, a lot of the shows that do kind of push the boundaries with man-on-man sex on screen are, are fantasy or science fiction or supernatural shows. I mean, you've got Torchwood, which is sci-fi. True Blood is, is, is supernatural. Game of Thrones is a fantasy show. Spartacus is, well, well, it claims to be historical. It's probably more fantasy, really, than anything else. Um, but these, these genres kind of exist outside of, you know, outside of the real scenario. Um, you know, because... And so... And, by doing so, they're not actually transgressing any, you know, cultural mores that we have in society today, um, which is why, you know, sort of, we don't get to see, you know, men having sex in Pact of the Rafters or, you know, in Offspring or, or anything like that, because, you know, they, you know, that would, you know, you, I think you would actually get people turning off and sort of saying, oh no, we don't want to see, you know, we're happy for them to have a kiss, we're happy for them to, to be gay, but we don't want to see them having sex. And it's like, not, you know, sort of what they do behind, you know, it's that old adage, what do they do behind doors, you know, behind their, um, their own, you know, in their own bedrooms is fine. We just don't want to have to see it. Um, but I thought what I'd do just, you know, just, you know, to finish this off is, is show a clip from Torchwood, from the recent um, series of Torchwood, or the, the current series of Torchwood. Um, interestingly enough, Torchwood now is, is a, a US-UK um, co-production, and Stars, which is again one of those independent channels, um, has you know sort of is, is co-producing it. And there was a big outcry when that was announced, and a lot of the the, um, the Torchwood fans were saying, "Oh no, it's going to be you know watered down. It's going to be a bland version. They're going to desexualise Captain Jack, and you know, and all that sort of stuff." There was a, a scene in episode three of the current series that screened where where Jack has sex, and we'll we'll, we'll see this in a minute. Um, that actually had to get trimmed um, for its UK screening um, because it was too explicit, and it was trimmed because it was it was too close after the the, um, the watershed you know sort of time slot, and it was BBC One, um, which of course is is the major broadcaster in the, in the UK. So it's kind of ironic that you know sort of that you know sort of the the country that was saying oh no you're gonna you know the Americans are gonna take everything that's good out of Torchwood. Um, are the ones that are actually cutting out, you know, where you know where Stars is taking it. So um, yeah, we'll just play this clip, and well, you can see for yourself whether it's you know 
too risky or, or whatever. I don't think it is. I don't think it goes far enough, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs>yeah it's 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 an interesting clip for you know for a lot of reasons but i think what's also interesting in this current series of torchwood you know no one can die and so that's you know that whole thing about well you know we can't die so you know what's the point you know in using you know protection against you know sort of hiv because you know we're not going to die from it but um as jack sort of says it's a lifetime regret so it's it's interesting because he's kind of behaving badly but then he's still you know his responsibility is still kicking in whether that's, you know, sort of Russell T Davies' responsibility kicking in as producer and head writer or whether it's Jack as well, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, scenes like that are actually quite rare and there's an episode later on in episode seven where it's, it has even more prolonged sex, um, you know, sort of with, with, a, with the character that he actually, you know, sort of builds a relationship with. Um, and, and, he, and sexuality is very much a part of, of Captain Jack, so you can't do Torchwood without that kind of scene. Um, but yeah, as, as, as I've sort of argued that, you know, yeah, most characters, most gay characters, they're fine and they're positive role models, but they're sexless. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, do, we, do you think that that's going to change anytime soon? Does it, does, you know, does anyone have any thoughts about whether that goes too far or not far enough? Or, you know, whether we do need to see, you know, sort of gay boys and on neighbours kissing, you know, and maybe going into a bedroom? Well, I live the, in my family there's a, uh, our household, we live with a, a, male, a, gay, a male gay couple, and my 13-year-old said to me the other day, um, I might feel really bad because I felt a bit uncomfortable watching Michael and Doug kiss the other day. And I said, what an incredibly insightful thing to say. And I said, I'm not surprised. I said, how often have you seen same-sex affection or sex played out in movies, television, kit animation, advertising, how, how many times have you watched same-sex couples kiss? And he said, never. And I said, exactly, exactly. We need to normalise it for the people who don't come across it in their lives because the fact that we don't um, implicitly uh, reinforces homophobia because it's like if you don't see it happening, it doesn't exist. 
or it's wrong and we can't show it. And you're Bob Catter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely <laughs> Bob Catter. No, I don't think it went far enough. I thought it was very sexy. I get uncomfortable watching heterosexual sex on TV. <laughs> <laughs> that's only when you're sitting next to your mum. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, I had to sit through mum. You know, in, in you know, sort of, I, mum used to. I was living at home at the time, and we were watching GP, and I had to sit through a couple of episodes of GP where you know, sort of, I think one of the, the guest characters was at a beat having sex. You know, or you know, sort of, well, you didn't actually see him having sex, but you knew that that's what he was doing. And I felt really uncomfortable sitting next to Mum because I knew what was going on, and you know, yeah. <laughs> there was also a character on GP, a guy who got raped. Yeah. Do you remember that? I, I remember thinking that was really shocking because I didn't think a guy could get mm, raped, mm, mm. and um, that was really eye-opening for me. It might have even been that, the same episode that I'm thinking of as well, but um, but yeah. So you get you get uncomfortable with heterosexuals, sort of. Child. Yeah, I'd, I'd, my, I'd say gross. I, out loud, <laughs> I just can't. I don't. It depends. It's usually, you know, actors or a, an overbearing man, or so. Yeah, I'm, I'm bad. To, I'm, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm by it when it comes to my hatred. I hate it when it gets too um, sort of romantic. Like here's a rainbow doomy on it. That kind yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the, the one we're like, let's go. Like I find that somehow less. Awkward. Yeah, yeah. Like Suki and Eric at the moment on True Blood are just really embarrassing. Mm. Mm. Remember when there was the lesbian kiss on Home and Away and that was a really big deal? I mean, I wrote at the time, I'd rather my kids see lesbians than Christians on television. <laughs> <laughs> and I got huge back. I didn't even think it was, yeah. I don't think that's provocative. Fucking no way. No. And well, the reason they, that Home and Away went with a lesbians, you know, sort of um, called story Charlie line. and Joey. They had these butch <laughs> professions, like one yeah. was a cop and one was a deckhand. But I think you know, sort of, in some ways, you know, having you know, even that you provoked quite a bit of outrage. But I think having two women kissing or you know, two women showing you know, effect, you know, sexual affection to each other on screen is a lot less confronting yeah. and, a, and a, lot, a lot more acceptable than than two men. It sort of kind of breaks that. There's unbroken this idea rule. of creep. I remember. Th- thinking recently about the idea of male masturbation, how the idea of, like, female masturbation seems to be generally the consensus is it's considered, like, a bit... It's a bit cool. It's a bit of a frisson. That's kind of okay. But male masturbation is considered in the mainstream as creepy, off, disgusting, predatory and stuff like that. I'm going, how did that happen? Because it's actually not true. If you talk to people about how they feel about it, they go, no, I think it's really sexy or whatever. It, I don't see it played out. You've got to realise what, how much a vested interest that the mainstream media and the screen stuff that we see has in keeping the status quo the status quo. Um, and there's, there's big reasons for this and there's small reasons for this too. Um, did anyone, does anyone here feel, <coughs> feel challenged by anything, you know, sort of that, you know, that Torchwood scene or even, you know, sort of the Glee scene or anything? Or No, we're all enlightened. Oh, yeah. I love the way he's clearly going to some fantasy gay high school. <laughs> 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 um, yes, you... Just got a question. You mentioned the Torchwood scene and you said that you thought it was interesting and groundbreaking, but I haven't seen the scene myself. I thought why it was sort of interesting in the sense it was really passionate and full on. Yeah. 
in coming with the, the heterosexual stuff. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, look, yes, yeah, we did actually um, cut out, there, there was a scene between, um, between yeah, two straight characters having, having sex as well, and it was sort of like, you know, the sexy end of the night kind of, you know, thing, and so we did actually cut that out, you know, but yes, you're right, yeah, it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, to, to make it a bit more palatable, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll just show that, you know, it's, you know, it's not just all about gay sex, there is straight sex and there are straight characters in this show as well. And, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that actually is quite interesting. The later episode, episode seven, you know, it's just all, it's all gay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually a very interesting episode, and that's kind of like the game-changing episode as well. But, um, but, um, but yes, but I think that's enough from me, and it's time for Mel, because I think we're sort of running a little bit okay, behind. Okay, I'm going to go to the lectern, okay. just because I can. <laughs> and, and you're actually talking about alpha, alpha beta males. Um, you know, I mean, you were... <clears throat> sorry. Oh, it's dark. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, you were, you were talking about sort of gay men, um, but I'm talking about men who sort of fight without there being some kind of sexual um, basis to it. I mean, this idea of, of alpha and beta, that, that men are essentially animals, um, sort of jockeying for status and position, is... Something that TV does a lot, I mean, something that culture does a lot, I mean, men aren't, def they definitely aren't the only people who jockey for status and who sometimes resort to violence and intimidation to get what they want in group situations. But um, it's the, the idea that there is an alpha, like a guy who rules the pack, um, that seems to be quite widespread. You can see it in um, shows like The Sopranos, in Game of Thrones, in Deadwood... Um, all these men sort of posturing and um, trying to sort of assert themselves. So I want to talk just about two shows, and I've picked them because one of them is about men posturing at work and one of them is about men posturing at home. Um, so the first one is Mad Men. Obviously, you can't have a discussion of alpha males without talking about Don Draper. What I think is really interesting about Don Draper is that he's playing a part. He's not Don Draper, as, as I hope this isn't a spoiler, because um, this is some years ago now. Um, he's actually Dick Whitman, who's made the decision to swap identities with a dude that he went to war with. Um, Dick Whitman was a beta male. He was um, born to a prostitute. His dad hated him. He grew up thinking that he was worthless. And then he got a chance to change his life, and he's really seized that chance. And um, in flashback sequences that Mad Men has all the way through the four seasons so far, you can see Don gradually seizing new chances to assert himself um, and using his wits to, to get ahead. And even though uh, he's not the boss at Sterling Cooper when we first meet him, but he kind of is the boss. Um, and one of the major story arcs in the first season is about um, how he's having this rivalry with the young account executive, Pete Campbell. And Pete wants to be the alpha male. So he's basically jockeying. He's trying to make Don look bad, make himself look good. And uh, he stumbles across Don's secret and spends most of the, the first season trying to blackmail him. And Don's just like, no, you're not going to get anywhere. But secretly, Don's shitting his pants, going, oh, my God, oh my God, if they find out that I'm not Don... He's, he's terrified of what will happen. Um, but then in a very <clears throat> pivotal episode towards the end, Pete finally takes his secret to, to Bertram Cooper, the senior partner of, of Sterling Cooper, um, to see what he can do and how he can expose Don. So we're just going to see that clip now. More bad news? You came here to drown your sorrows. I'm not really much of a drinker. 
No, I just wanted to say. I'm pulling the trigger on top of Phillips. See, he's, he's shitting service. himself. He's really. Oh, sad. good. Well done. What? I have to bring this up to you. Only because I believe that if I kept it from you, in the end, it would be damaging to Sterling Cooper. It has come to my attention, completely by accident, that Donald Draper here is not who he says he is. His real name is Dick Whitman. But Dick Whitman died in Korea ten years ago. It stands to reason that he is a deserter at the very least, and who knows what else. were true, who cares? This country was built and run by men with worse stories than whatever you've imagined here. I'm not imagining anything. The Japanese have a saying, a man is whatever room he is in. And right now, Donald Draper is in this room. I assure you, there's more profit in forgetting this. I'd put your energy into bringing in accounts. Darn. Fire him if you want. But I'd keep an eye on him. One never knows how loyalty is born. So that's exactly what Don ends up doing. He um, keeps an eye on Pete Campbell when he... Um, this, hopefully this is not a spoiler as well. They start their own agency called Sterling Cooper Draper Price and he takes Pete with him as his head of accounts. And um, there's a, an, a point where they've got this uh, US government account and they're going to have to do these security clearance things. Don once again is shitting himself because, oh no, they're going to find out that he's Dick Whitman. Um, and he says to Pete, we can't have this account, we can't have this account. And Pete loyally um, says, all right, I'll somehow say that we've got a conflict of interest. And he gets Don out of that sticky situation. And uh, to reward Pete when he does that, there comes a point where each of the partners has to put in money to bail out the agency when it's not doing well. Pete doesn't have the money and he has this big fight with his wife over um, how they're going to you know, save the agency and their marriage. And then um, Pete gets to work and, and finds out that Don has paid his share. So there is, there is loyalty in the wolf pack. And um, by submitting that one time in season one, um, Pete basically um, got his ass saved for him in season four. 
Um, the Pete-Don relationship is a very interesting dynamic in Mad Men. So is the um, Don and Roger dynamic. Um, Don basically blagged his way into the job at Sterling Cooper and quickly became indispensable. Roger Sterling is the product of an earlier generation. He's the scion of the original Sterling who started the agency. And he's not actually had to work very hard to, to get his... Uh, his job done. He's from the old school where you take people out to lunch, you schmooze them, you get them hookers, you take them to shows. That's how business is done. And he finds out that the way business is happening is much more brutal as the 60s wear on. Um, and there's a, there's a pivotal scene in uh, season four, episode five, where Honda uh, comes to Sterling Cooper to ask them to pitch for a motor scooter account. And uh, Roger, having served in World War II, um, goes off on a an incredibly embarrassing racist tirade. And this is especially embarrassing to Cooper, the senior partner who's um, a real enthusiast of Japan. You heard him talking about the Japanese in, um, in that thing. He always makes people take off their shoes when they go into his office. It's like a Japanese uh, room. Um, so let's see that clip now. I didn't know this meeting was happening. Then again, I know how some people love surprises. I apologize, gentlemen. But for some reason, I was not informed. In fact, someone set a long lunch for me with Randolph. Well, it was last minute, and now, unfortunately, drawing to a close. Well, I have to warn you, they won't know it's over until you drop a big one. Twice. The meeting is not over. We have yet to present the rules. So now you're dictating terms. <sighs> Mr. Kamura, Mr. Saito, this is Roger Sterling. And this is their translator, Akira Takahashi. We give up each firm $3,000 for a competitive presentation. In this packet are the conditions for the competition. We don't want any conditions. We want it to be unconditional. Akira, go ahead, tell him what I said. Roger, stop it. These men are our guests. I know exactly who these men are. You think you can just come in here and we'll fawn all over you? We beat you, and we'll beat you again. And we don't want any of your jack crap. So, sign up. If you could only know my embarrassment. His wife's very sick. He's been drinking a lot. You have our rules. We very much look forward to your presentation. You don't get to kill this account. Well, you know how they are. Maybe it'll kill itself. Enough. I'm not even talking about money right now. I'm talking about the kind of work you can do for those people. Have you seen that motorcycle? They love design. As long as my name's in that lobby, I get to choose whom I do business with. And I've got a lot better reasons than you had with Jansen. Jansen was over. Well, I made a pledge to a lot of men you'll never meet not to do business with them. Christ on a cracker, where do you get off? You know what? You weren't there. You weren't anywhere. I'm sorry you can't understand. It's been almost 20 years. And whether you like it or not, the world has moved on. These are not the same people. How could that be? I'm the same people. You don't think I know what you're doing? 
You're wrapping yourself in the flag so you can keep me from bringing in an account. Because you know that every chip I make, we become less dependent on Lucky Strike and therefore less dependent on you. Why, you little Get him out of here. The rest of us are trying to build something. He's right. So when you first meet Roger in season one, he's every bit the, the charming boss of the agency. You think he's the one in charge. And this clip just shows, that, and season four shows, that Roger Sterling is a man out of his depth. The world has changed, he hasn't changed. And it's Don, the guy who rolls with the punches, who invents new identities for himself, is the guy who's successful. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a, a similar sort of conflict that, that Don has with Duck Phillips. Now, you heard um, Don mention in the first clip that I showed that he's bringing on this whiz-bang account guy, Duck Phillips. Um, however, Duck is kind of uh, a bit of a screw-up as well as Roger. They're about the same age. Duck has a major drinking problem. And uh, in season... I think it's season three, um, Duck and Peggy have a little bit of a, a fling, which is something I just still don't understand. Um, he promises to give her a go-around like she's never had before. And, um, and then uh, on her birthday, he presents her with a box of business cards um, with her name on them and his as well. He proposes that they go out in business together. She refuses because she sees that Don is the, is the guy in charge. He's the person to hitch her wagon to. Um, and then in, in this episode, they end up um, going out, I mean, Peggy and Don, I mean, going out, getting extremely drunk, um, they go back to the office to finish off this uh, piece of work and um, while Don is spewing in the toilet, um, a drunken duck comes in search of Peggy, the woman who spurned him. Can we have that clip now, please? Peggy? Duck? Draper a little present. Duck, that's disgusting. Would you let me concentrate? This is Roger's office. Now come on, pull up your pants. I'm not going anywhere <laughs> without you. Baby, baby, I need you so bad. You wouldn't answer your phone. And your roommate said you were still at work. Why didn't you answer the phone, Pee-wee? What's going on? Just go lay down. You don't belong here. So, Peggy, I see you're not alone. Guess when screwing me couldn't get you anything, you had to go back to Draper. Doc, let's go. No. That's right. We were in love. Turns out she's just another whore. Hey! Jesus, would you stop? Stop it! You're both drunk! You know, I killed 17 men in Okinawa. Uncle. 
Um, that's the one moment where you kind of see Don in the, the submissive wolf pose, um, you know, perhaps fearing that he will be another Okinawa victim. Um, but basically, that's, that's duck. He's over. He's finished. Um, whereas Don is still on the up and up. Don might have lost weekends where he wakes up next to a woman and can't remember how she got in his house. He might make terrible mistakes in his personal life, but he's still basically top dog at work, no matter what happens. Um, now, I would like to move on to uh, another show that's about how um, men deal with each other at home. It's about specifically the family, and I'm talking about Arrested Development. Um, basically, Michael Bluth is the opposite of Don. He's a beta male. He's a guy who's just tried his hardest his entire working life and his whole family life, and yet he finds himself being outsmarted, um, conspired against at every possible turn. Now, um, let's have a look at the um, key moment in the pilot episode where um, Michael is crushed once again by his dad in the most humiliating way. I guess it's time for me to uh, <laughs> mosey on. And although I won't be uh, saddling up and uh, going, uh, going in every day, there's someone else who's going to. I give you the new CEO for the Bluth Company. Certainly the smartest Bluth. My favorite Bluth. And the uh, sexiest creature I have ever laid eyes on. My lovely wife, Lucille. Michael, it's never the right time. He's the one who saves everyone's asses again and again, all through Arrested Development, in the most farcical situations um, where his family are doing their level best to humiliate him and, and bring him down. And, and he's also trying to be a good dad as well to his own son, George Michael, and to, to be the strong role model um, that he's seen from his dad without being a dickhead like his dad is. And, um, and yet he always feels crushed as well when he feels like he's let down George Michael, that not even his own son respects him. Um, basically, they end up having to try and make money out of the banana stand after this, this humiliation in episode one. And so episode two, um, Michael finally makes a stand. He's decided that there's one thing he's going to do that is going to really finally make his dad respect him. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, yeah, so can we have the, the next clip, please? I'm gonna get blamed for this. George Michael? Yeah, hey. What are you doing? Well, I was just, uh. I was burning down the banana stand. What? I'm sorry, Dad. I screwed it all up. I've got no right to call myself Mr. Manager. Manager? Manager. I'm sorry, Dad. Oh, uh, George Michael. I, I am. I mean, but listen, I'll make it up to you. I mean, I'll work weeknights, I'll lay people off. I'll give up my summer, all my summers. Just, just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Michael realized he had done to his son what his father had done to him. So he came up with a solution. Burn it down. What? Let's burn this son of a bitch. It's gonna be our best summer ever, buddy. And so, Michael, his son and his brother together enjoyed the cathartic burning of the banana stand. You mailed that insurance check, right, Joe? 
<laughs> you what? Burned it right down to the ground. Are you crazy? There was money in that banana stand. Well, it's all gone now, Dad, and it was my decision. So the next time you want to have a little power struggle, just remember that you're playing with fire. There's $250,000 lining the walls of the banana stand. What? Cash, Michael. Why didn't you tell me that? How much clearer can I say there's always money in the banana stand? No touching! No touching! No touching! No touching! No touching! I love the no touching meme that goes all the way through Arrested Development. It cracks me up. Um, so here's Michael, poor guy, thinking that he's finally, and you can see how cocky he is talking to his dad, thinking he's finally made a man of himself and he's just made a monkey out of himself with the banana stand. Um, and you saw Job, of course, his feckless older brother, um, who in a farcical twist gets installed as the CEO of um, Bluth Company. And basically, there's a touching moment in um, early in season two where Michael and Job realise that their dad has played them both for suckers. And here they are both trying to be alpha guys and they're both just different kinds of beta guys. Um, so let's have a look at the touching episode where they, they come to this realisation. Where the hell is my brother? Sure, sure, sure. The guy in the $600 banana suit. Come on! Hey. What the hell are you doing? Hey, don't be mad at me because you didn't think about getting up at 6 a.m. and going out to Tarzana to get the old banana suit out of storage. But it's worth it because it's time for me to make people laugh again. With me. And what's funnier than a guy in a... Since he became president, Joe heard the sweet sound of laughter. They're laughing with me, Michael! They're laughing with me! Unfortunately, Buster's newfound skills did not involve lowering gently. Tobias is another kind of beta man in a show that's just stuffed full of them. Um, I promised a friend of mine that I would discuss Tobias's never nudity. Um, that's a, another way in, in which he's emasculated. It's interesting because Tim was talking about gay men and Arrested Development constantly plays with uh, Tobias's shocking comments that seem clearly homosexual but uh, are often just him being an idiot who has no idea what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> Basically, this, this is a family who are uh, constantly struggling to be on top but, but farcically never do. Um, even Buster um, gets sort of his comeuppance when he's attacked by a loose seal um, later in, in season two. And uh, they're, trying to, to come, they're trying to come up with some kind of uh, structure that's constantly being undone by their, all their attempts to to climb up the ladder. So imagine, if you will, a sort of a, a greasy pole where as, as soon as you try and climb up it, you fall down into a pile at the bottom. That's basically what Arrested Development is. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to talk about. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments?
No, everyone is full of excitement. <laughs> Maybe I should have just played a few more Arrested Development clips. Um, well, not having actually... I've, I've actually got season one of Mad Men <coughs> waiting for me to sit down, you know, sort of over, the, over a holiday period to sort of go through it because it's just one of those shows that bypassed me. Um, but I do have it on, on DVD and it's just one of those, you know, I've got to get to it kind of things. But, yeah, it's... it's you know, sort of the. Um, it's interesting what you're sort of saying about the, the alpha males and the beta males, and 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 then you know, sort of when you, when you talk like that, you sort of you you can't help. Well, I can't help but reflect and sort of think. Mm, so, what am I? Am I the alpha male or the beta male? And I have a feeling that I'm probably the beta male, but um, I'm doing all right. But well, I think that if you want to be an alpha male, you have to sacrifice <coughs> certain ideas. You can't be a nice guy and be an alpha male. You have to be a bit of an asshole, basically. But as Job shows, you, you don't have to be an alpha male. Uh, like, being an asshole doesn't make you an alpha male. You can be an asshole and, and still be a beta male. So earlier in that episode that I was showing, um, he's strutting around in the, in the Bluth company offices, um, boasting about how expensive his suit is. Um, but he's the one who um, gets mocked by everyone else. Um, not just once in the banana suit, but earlier on when... Uh, the Christmas party turns into an informal let's roast Job um, night. Um, yeah, but, like, Don Draper is not a very likeable guy and he doesn't really have any friends. Um, it wouldn't be a, a nice thing to be Don Draper. Um, that's why I think we only ever like to, to be him in this vicarious way by watching all the things that he does wrong and sort of uh, glorying in how bad he is. Um, but it's it's not a pleasant way to live your life, I think. And, and the fear that Don lives with as well is not something that I would enjoy. Catherine, do you think that, um, that Channel 9 is full of alpha males? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I, I wrote, because I got a phone call from Eddie Maguire and I was a little <laughs> fearful. I say that, I wasn't really. Um, because... I had a lot of lines about Eddie Maguire cut out of my copy because they said he's very litigious. Um, Channel 9 was notoriously litigious. But I was talking about... Uh, I referred to the, the guys who ran Channel 9 or the programming department who were called fitters and turners. They, you know, they, you know turned the you know, television into... Uh, how, fitter and turners, so it was... Um, they, um, yeah, they fit the stuff into the program and they turned it into shit, is what they did. <laughs> and I said, I called them, guy, you know, they were called guys called Wanger, Gooker and Macca who wore bomber jackets, listened to Fleetwood Mac and got a stiffy at the thought of getting a car park next to Eddie Maguire. <laughs> so I had this phone call from him and I didn't know what was going to be going on. And he was going, oh, I thought it was, yeah, I love your stuff, love it, read it everywhere. No, I truly do. Just thought, just want you know, I've changed my car park, moved my car park now. I thought he was fucking hilarious. And in the background was this screaming, was a man screaming. <laughs> and um, I said, who's that? He said, oh, that's just Sam yelling at his cleaner. And I could just, like, hear it all there. Haven't. Yeah, it is full of alpha males, but... I thought about that term. Do you think of females as alpha and beta females or is there a different way of categorising them? They're called them? queens That's when right. you talk about um, girls. So, like, I'm thinking about mean girls, um, how you've got the queen bee and her little sort of followers mm. um, whom she, you know, relentlessly slaps down mm. and every time they try and assert themselves, she crushes them. Mm. Um, so the, the bitchiness is, is kind of the way that women... Police status, whereas with men it can be just open aggression. Mm, 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 mm. Um, although I don't know, are there sometimes cases where women have resorted to blows? Can you think of any shows that that happens on? 
Oh, ten, um, Wendy Deng went the thump <laughs> um, on the person, the comedian who was putting a pie mm. in Rupert's face. I mean, apart from Prisoner <laughs> and Girls Gone Wild. But I don't know whether, like, when you say alpha males and beta males, the way that I think about them are probably a little bit more favourable and I see the alpha males as, um, as kind of, you know, strong and heroic and the beta, a bit like Batman and Robin mm. in a way, rather than the way that, they, but that's like an absolutely valid definition. But, well, they um, can be strong. So I'm just going, I just think that they're just, you know, just scum and maggots and creeps who run Channel Nine. So I don't even know whether I want to give them the terms alpha and beta male. I think that they're. I think that they're. Well, that, that scene that you described with the phone call sounds like mm. something that could have happened on Arrested Development. Well, it was true. It was really true. And you just go, "There's just no way now." I don't think I've ever really told that story before because I'm going, "No one would believe it. They would just think I was making it up." But mm. Sam was yelling at his cleaner. Ripley, who's one of the most you know experienced stand-ups. <coughs> in Australia, uh, was due to appear on the Sydney footy show. And then he had to give his material to the producers and uh, written down. And so on the day when he was due to perform, they axed him. And it's, that's kind of, you know, that was humiliating for him at the time, he said. And uh, that's just, and for me, that's just a bunch of fuckwits who don't get it. Like, it's very frustrating to think that someone, someone like Greg Fleet, yep. who is broad, laconic, you yep. know, Aussie, man, yeah, yeah. Aussie, but yet not quite our idea of Aussie, that's disgusting. That And that makes me feel like I have no place on, you know, it, it makes Channel 9 feel like a, a bit of a bubble that... It's a boys' club, isn't yeah, it? It's a boys oh, club. yeah, absolutely. Prefix clubhouse. It's just, it's backstabbing, pissing competitions, point scoring, and I suppose what makes me angry is, is it's been such a part of our lives and our makeup and our history, just reinforcing these ideas of what men are over and over and over again. Mm. And you know, where does a, a young writer, director, television, you know, practitioner look? if they want to work in commercial television, you know, because there's great commercial television, as we all know. It doesn't have to be like that, you know. And they're smug about it too, mm. you know. I, yeah, I often say to my partner, sort of, oh, the thing I find about Channel 9 is that it's just smug, mm. you know, the ads and the uh, station IDs and, mm. and all the personalities. Still that are the now. one. Yeah. Are they still the one? They're not, are they? Well, they're struggling, although they've done well Channel with the Channel 7 block, is more the one now, aren't they? Than, um, yeah. Channel 10 did, did quite well with MasterChef, but even though this year, you know, sort of that's gone on. Anyway, that's getting Could off topic. Could be different with them, de different demographics. One thing that I find really interesting, I met Peter Hitchener. We were both on um, Carrie Ann's show being hosted by Lavinia Nixon. It's a long story. <laughs> um, in a little panel cutaway, something. And he was gorgeous, just absolutely loved him. He was clearly, he, he struck me as the most beautiful and charming man, but kind of quite fearful. Um, like he is... Well, he's the odd one out. He is the odd one out. He's gay and I think the story went that, um, I think this is the story, Harold's son said they would out him. Um, they had a choice, they would out him or they, he could do a profile. And, um, and Peter did do a profile with them um, about his life and, and that he, you know, wasn't one of those, you know, straight people, um, but it's not really been mentioned since. Mm. Um, there's a, you know, vacillating with that kind of thing between um, fetishising it and tokenising it and kind of being, 
I don't know whether you can use jingoistic in gender politics, but um, we just want to normalise, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, which kind of segues nicely, Dan, into into um, into your little um, segment because you're kind of taking us behind the scenes into the you know sort of what goes on back you know backstage. Yeah, and, and that's the idea. Good day. Um, so yeah, I'll uh, I'll power through. But I, I when I um, when I willed myself to think about men in television, it occurred to me that you don't have to think about men, you just have to think about television. Um, <laughs> because I, I'd sat and I wrote down all the names that occurred to me when I thought TV, and um, it took me till about, to about name 20 before I got to a woman, that was Magda Zabansky. And they were, uh, the names were who I grew up with. Um, and in a way, because, and it, it draws on what we were talking about just then, um, I desperately wanted to work in television when I was about, I don't know, anyway, I was like 12 years old writing, cutting out newspaper articles and writing jokes about them. I didn't know why. Um, I'm sure they were shit. And, uh, and I, but I was watching, you know, The Late Show and you had Rob Sitch and all of that. And, but I wonder now, watching, growing up, watching Australian television, would you be compelled to get involved? I don't know if you would. Uh, I, I certainly was. Um, but so the, the people I grew up with are a part of me now and, um, and every, uh, every comedy writer... Because I've, I've worked on some panel shows like uh, Glass House and Einstein Factor and, um, you know, I interned in the writing department of Letterman and, um, you know, 7pm project I was a writer on. So panel shows is my kind of thing and I always kind of liked them. Uh, and it's funny because it's all the writers uh, are comedy nerds, TV nerds, really, um, who come to the table with all of their influences. Uh, so one interesting thing about um, being, a, being a writer um, for one of those shows is that in a writing room, anything goes. It's just, it's like international waters. You can say whatever you like. And it's totally fine. Would you agree, Catherine? Totally true. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly liberating. And it's, it's great. And it helps because I'm, you know, a white guy in my 20s. Uh, whereas, as we might see, uh, and this, well, I'll show you a scene from 30 Rock, uh, it can be a little bit grating for other people, uh, the whole anything goes libertarian attitude. Anyway, can we see that clip? Jar? I didn't know anyone was here. That's what you use the jars for? You told me that was sun tea. Some of them are sun tea, and some of them were sun tea. What? Do you know about this? We have a gentleman's agreement. He gets the jars, and in return, he's agreed to let a Yale sweatshirt be our designated fart dampener. What is wrong with you guys? What would it be like if Sari and Sue and I were not here? I'd take my pants off and eat chicken wings. Shut it down. <laughs> Throw away the jars. Fine, but I'm going to recycle them, and then one day as you drink some apple juice, you'll wonder, where has this jar been?
Yeah, so it's, uh, and that's, uh, I should have prefaced by, you, I'm sure you would know what 30 Rock is, but they're writers on a uh, sketch comedy show. And uh, one thing that's interesting about comedy writers, I reckon, is we probably grew up dorky and, you know, you know not, like we weren't alpha males, like there aren't, there aren't too many alpha males in a writing room. Um, but then when they're in the room, it gets very competitive. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, when, when stuff gets competitive, I kind of shut down because I don't like to compete. But um, it's, yeah, it's, everyone gets their big swinging dick on. And uh, which I'll, I'll show a clip um, of that soon as well, an example of that. I, I also, I was a writer on some shows I don't normally admit to. Um, like, I was writing on Biggest Loser and, uh, and National Bingo Night. Do you remember National Bingo Night? <laughs> so, it didn't last very long. But it's interesting, that was probably one of my experiences working on those m- massive shows uh, where you see the culture behind the screen, the executives, all of that. Like, I was, I was very close to all the machinations of the big swinging dicks. And it was, you know, you, you'll hear things like, like, and I won't say what show, but you'll, there'll be an executive and he'll say without any irony, he'll go, all we need is a blonde chick with a nice set of tits who can string a few words together. Like that's, and that's, that's in an audition when they've all left and they're trying to, you know, find out who to, who to get on telly. Um, and it, one interesting thing on National Bingo Night, there was a bingo commissioner who's in, the character was this Indian bingo commissioner, and he's. Does anyone remember his catchphrase? No one fucking saw the show. It was. It was. He would say no bingo. And um, yeah, yeah. So that guy uh, wasn't Indian, and he was a Bangladeshi, and he uh, didn't have an accent. He was born here, and he was a. Doctor, he's quite a well-known psychiatrist, actually. <laughs> but then, no, 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 bingo! Like he played this fucking buffoon. It, it was, uh, it was absolutely awesome. I loved it. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't love it, but I, I like being exposed to it, and I like being the quiet guy, sort of observing it. Um, I'll, I'll show another clip. Um, this is from the Larry Sanders show, which is, you know, it's just. Awesome. I loved it. It was, and it's, Larry Sanders is kind of based on, I think loosely on Letterman and, uh, anyway, this, this is Sarah Silverman playing a new writer, a female writer, who comes into this competitive kind of blokey environment and it's her first day and this is how she copes. Larry, girls just aren't that funny. And I'm the head writer, so my opinion count at all. See if she can start tomorrow. Look at this picture. Charlie Sheen's really putting on weight. Yeah, when you quit hookers, you put on 10 pounds. That's why I wear the patch. The pussy patch. I'm wearing one right now. I used to wear it over my eye for the look of it. Arr! Fuck my eye, me! (laughs) (laughs) Could you get something we could use, please? I've got one. Dr. Jack Kevorkian recently attended his 41st suicide. He announced that the 50th suicide would receive a free tote bag. (laughs) <laughs> That's funny. I have some. <laughs> uh, police in Los Angeles finally arrested the Energizer Bunny for running every red lady scene since 1989. Well, Larry doesn't do bunny jokes, okay? I like them. 
I like bunny jokes. Well, then you can use it tonight to impress the girls at the whorehouse. Hey, man, I don't need jokes to impress the girls at the whorehouse. Hey, somebody been fucking the couch? Because I can't figure out what this is on here. Nice ones. Huh? I know, they're nice ones. All right, I knew this was going to happen. Can you guys get to work, please? I have a joke. Mary and Barry. I'm sorry, go on, Rick. Okay. Mary and Barry. Hey, man, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, Louise's drink number for me. a big glass of city water at a press hey, Eddie, conference give me your, to prove uh, it was safe. Thank you. Hello, ladies. Hey, 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 how's it going? Is everyone treating you all right? Yeah. Good. So what's the deal, Kevin? You uh, do the show last night and sleep over? <laughs> yeah. I think I found the mint you left on the pillow. That's not a mint. <laughs> hey, does anyone have any stay hard cream? Oh, that stuff doesn't work. Larry, you're being hard on yourself. <laughs> I wish you could be Hank. Man, that would be sweet. Oh, let's all wish hard. Hey now, I heard that. Hey, did anybody see uh, Prince Charles on TV last night? That guy's a loser. Hello, hello, quite right, quite right. Look at my ear. That is great. I love John Wayne. <laughs> I thought it was George Goble. No, it's, it's Prince Charles, and you guys can go fuck yourselves. Bye, ladies. Still stay with John Wayne. So, um... Hmm. Has Larry said anything about my jokes? What do you mean? I mean, he's not using any of them, so I'm assuming he's passing on them. Has he said anything? Or... No, but that's because I haven't given him any of your jokes. I've written a hundred jokes. He hasn't seen one joke? It's my job to pick the ones that I think are best. And if you can write something in that category, I'll let him see it. But until then, I can't waste his time. said uh, Pope John Paul II will take a, a couple of weeks to recover from uh, an appendectomy, which seems like a long time to me because the Lord himself died and was up and around in three days. <laughs> scientists, uh, scientists actually say in a, a recent study that 10,000 years from now, Disneyland and Disney World will actually be touching. <laughs> Were those your jokes? No. They were mine. No, they're not. Wendy, are those your Uh, yeah. Funny. You guys are funny. Anyone have any crack? <laughs> Can I see you for a second? How did your jokes get in the monologue? Oh, I don't know, Phil. I guess Larry thought they were funny. How did Larry see them? Oh, how did the funny get through? Yeah. Oh, I gave my jokes to Beverly, and I guess she passed them on to Larry. Oh, my Mary and Larry joke. And you've treated me like shit since day one, so fuck you! Oh, here's tonight's monologue, Phil. Looks like a very funny one. Yeah, well, that's her fault. Oh, I see, Alibi Ike. She runs the department now. Now, I know you think women aren't funny, Phil, but don't give me that shit. Phil, it's your job to keep the system from fucking up so Larry, our star, has a monologue to do each night. Now, if you can't do your job, please tell me that now so I can do my job and fire your sorry ass. You've got exactly 20 minutes put a hilarious monologue on cue cards or you're out of here. Don't you get a swell head, young lady, because I'm afraid the same thing goes for you, too. Good job, Phil. Look, Wendy, I admit that I have some issues with my mother. She... Hurt me as a child, probably. Um, 
Maybe even abuse me. Shit, Phil. Please, this isn't easy for me. I have been under a lot of pressure lately, and I may have acted like a scumbag. No, 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 no. I have been a scumbag. And I think that you're paying for the pain that I've endured from chicks who I've dated in the past who screwed me up. Oh, wow. That would be interesting if we were going out, but we're not going out. I just want to get jokes in the monologue. Great. Well, I think we're speaking the same language. And would you like to help me write the monologue now? Before I already kicks our asses? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I love that. I've only recently kind of rediscovered it. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, that kind of rings very true from what I've observed uh, being in writers' rooms. And, yeah, it's funny that a lot of writers would profess themselves to be sort of left-wing, kind of progressive, but, you know, pers- they can be quite sexist and retrograde. Yes? I've, I've experienced exactly that stuff. And um, I was thinking about when uh, there was a guy called... Well, my first job was with Tonight Live, which was exactly the same thing. We were writing monologue jokes. And there was a guy... The head writer was away, and John Herovan was the head writer, who w- became a great friend of mine. And it was probably after this. Um, after four or five days of being head writer, and he'd collect all the monologue stuff, um, he would go in and see Steve... And Steve would, he said, he, he, you know, he'd get to your stuff. And I'd know it at your stuff because he'd be laughing. He'd be laughing and 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 flicking. And then getting to the next one, which would be Mike McCall Jones, who was old, established. He'd been Graham Kennedy's right-hand man. And he would go from laughing at everything, one of my jokes, and, and passing to just looking at Mike McCall Jones and going, that one, that one. That one, that one. And, you know, after a week, he said, I don't understand, you, every single time, the, the jokes you laughed loudest at are catchments, yet you don't pick them. And uh, it was like, Steve's like, I've got, got a meeting in five, John, I've got a... And, yes, it's, and all, we'll all tell stories like that. And I think that what is really interesting is your point, that, that the men would see themselves as very progressive and very kind of open and it's kind of quite cool, but, yeah... Uh, and also the idea, I think, that... Uh, just quickly, I think one thing that exposes probably more than anything the way that men are given more slack than women in television is that men are allowed to be shit. Like, we're just... There's a licence for us to be pretty incompetent sometimes. Um, <clears throat> you know, look at fucking the show Warning. Like... <laughs> Warney had a fucking talk show <laughs> on Channel 9, the, the home of Graham fucking Kennedy, and they give it to Shane Warne. Uh, that blows my mind. And, and it, thankfully, it didn't last long. Um, but, and I'm, I'm one of the few <clears throat> people to think that the Dalai Lama has jumped the shark. But <laughs> he, he, I think what proved it for me, we have a, we have a still. Do you remember this? This was... Um, uh, so that's that's Carl Stefanovic interviewing the Dalai Lama, and you know Dalai Lama had been on MasterChef, which I didn't think was a good move. Um, <clears throat> but Carl Stefanovic gets five minutes with him, and he tells him a joke. Does anyone remember the joke? It was it was Dalai Lama goes into a pizza shop and asks the guy behind the counter, "Can you make me one with everything?" 
Um, which, frankly, it's, it's, it's almost a good joke. For the joke to work properly, the Dalai Lama had to be the one behind the counter serving the pizza because he has... What does the Dalai Lama need advice on being one with it? You know what I mean? So, anyway, that was just my little niggly... Uh, it's a badly worded joke. But it, could you imagine on what planet would a woman... Name one woman who could get away with asking the Dalai Lama... And Dalai Lama that question without being thought of as a larrikin, you know, or a dag. It's an interesting thing. I wrote about... Uh, I did a column for The Green Guide about sunrise versus today. And this is a part of it. This is about Koshi. Koshi is a part of many people's morning routine with sunrise on in the background as they get ready. This is strange. Using Koshi's voice for ambience is like listening to whale noises for financial advice. (laughs) For men in such shows, it is important to either be a dag or a larrikin. A dag can get away with anything because a dag means well. And a larrikin doesn't know any better. Koshi is a dag. Koshi's retrograde foibles are emboldened by his... Uh, own supremacy in the Sunrise universe. He is the patriarch at the head of the breakfast table. Conflict with Koshi is discouraged and opinions are best funnelled through objections found in viewer feedback. Adoration is expressed by pissing yourself at one of his dad jokes. Uh, and it's, it seriously is, you know, they, when you watch Sunrise, the people, the women there kind of look scared of him. Uh, he wields incredible power and they can't contradict him uh, you know, straight. So they have to, they seriously have to read out feedback that says, oh, the, this person reckons you might be a little bit wrong, Koshi, because if he, he wields too much power and, it, and he's one of the lovely ones, you know? Like he's, that's why it's easy to beat up on uh, the footy show, but Koshi's supposed to be, you know, the everyman. And that's why, uh, if I can use the C bomb, and Catherine and I have talked about this. It's, I, I much prefer the cunts rather than the cunt code uh, because that's, it's easier to see Sam Newman's an idiot than to see that uh, Koshi is playing a dad. Um, and also, there's another still here of Mahatma Cote. He was, um, you know, the, Mahatma Cote is Greg Ritchie. Do you remember? Greg Ritchie was a former test cricketer. I didn't play a ton of tests. And then... We, I, had a, I had video, but it was, the resolution was too bad. It was Mahatma Coat doing a pitch report. And so he's like, you know, he's, a, he's in blackface going, goodness gracious me, the key goes into the... It's like National Bingo... It's, it's the Bingo Commissioner before the Bingo Commissioner. Um, so I, that's, that's an example of just men being allowed to be shit. Whereas if you make one mistake uh, as a woman, you get kind of... Handed out of town, it kind of seems to me. And it's also, it also seems to me that um, one group of people that is denied, ha, denied the permission to have an artistic temper- temperament are the artists. Uh, whereas Sam Newman can yell at his cleaner and it's fucking no worries, mate. Um, so anyway, I'll, uh, I'll finish up because uh, we're running late, but thank you. Um, yeah, Dan, it's interesting, you know, sort of that whole, yeah, the boys do run run the ship and, and what you were saying about, you know, sort of 
the larrikin being able to get away with being shit and, you know, females aren't. Um, Jennifer Kite is kind of an interesting one because um, she's, she's one of the, the, the females that is actually doing, you know, still around. But there was, how long, about 10 years ago or so, there were all those, you know, sort of scandal stories about her. Try you know, 20. I think, I think it was when I was at uni. Yeah, it was way back then. Yeah, all those, you know, the, the scandal stories about Jennifer Kite having sex and having to have, you know, um, stitches or whatever mm. because... Oh, that was Tracy Curie. No, was it? I was. Well, I heard it was, uh, it was um, Jennifer Kite with Johnny Kite. Diesel and the Coke bottle. <laughs> yeah, I heard that one. See, and, and those kind of stories are, are treated as like, oh, that's dreadful. How dare she? But if it was, you know, if it was Sam Newman or if it was Warney or if it was someone like that, it's like, yeah, good on you, mate. You know, sort of... I think that that's what the, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, I've said before, I wish there was a scientific way that I could prove that women who colour outside the lines get a um, hundred times more vitriol and it's a thousand times more vicious. Um, Ida Butros said the other day on Australian Story, she said, you know, when, when men falter in public, the boys' club come to their aid, but when women do, do, nobody comes. So I think that when you talk about Jennifer Kine, I think what's interesting is the, the lines that are drawn around women and men. It's like, it's okay for them to do that because they're that kind of person. They are a larrikin. They're a rough diamond with a heart of gold. They're a pants man. They're warning, whatever. But Jennifer Kite, what would she be allowed to do? Like, she couldn't even... If she said fuck, it would end up on the front page. So you're saying, you know, she's still there, but how much room does she have to move? Don't just look at the amount of women that are allowed on our screens. screens. Look at how they're meant to look and what they're allowed to say. Um, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, look, even, you know, just thinking about MasterChef, you know, this year, um, you know, oh, they'd yeah. have... They'd have... They turn... Everybody's turned on MasterChef, haven't they? Well, yeah, but, it, you know, it was, you know, this year it became quite apparent that it was, you know, very much a boys' club. I mean, you know, the first year that MasterChef had the female, you know, sort of host, whose name I've forgotten. She was terrific, yeah. I thought. But then they dropped her for the second season, but then they had Donna Hay coming in every now and again, and she looked like a drag queen in, in high heels. Um, you know, in, in a, and, but they, she basically disappeared from this last season. It was so, it was so, you know, you know, every, all the, everyone presenting, they were male. There was, you mm. know, sort of the two match. There was Gary. There was, there was George, and you know, and, and most of the the, um, the chefs, apart from, apart from your maternal figures like, you know, um, um, Margaret Fulton. Margaret Fulton, yeah. yes, and Stephanie Alexander and, mm. and um, Maggie Beer, and you know, sort of. Well, not maybe not Stephanie Alexander. She's not very motherly, but Maggie Beer certainly is. And you yeah. know, and so they were the ones that they were, you know, the females that they were bringing in. And so it was, yeah, it was kind of perpetuating all sorts of, of stereotypes. Hey, Dan, when, you, when you're in these writers' environments, like, and I've been in these rooms with men, particularly when I was younger, and just watching them, you know, there is such a currency on. We all laugh at Dicko's jokes. We don't laugh at her jokes. We don't laugh at his jokes. Yeah. We laugh at his jokes, but not if they're two. How do you feel when this is happening in front of your eyes? That you've got to, you're in this environment where you're torn between standing up for what you believe in and having to fit in, get the job done, and and kind of work within the ecosystem oh. of the writers' room and the sh- and the show. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a, probably a crusader in the room or anything. Uh, I'm, I'm probably the man you... Uh, I'm not the man you wish I was in that room. I let it, I let it slide and, and talk about it at Acme. 
<laughs> but there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know, like... They're, they're, they're... Oh, I, don't, I don't encourage it. I, will, no. I, I won't... And uh... just because people don't speak up at the time doesn't yeah. mean that they're not... And I don't laugh if it's not funny, as a rule. Like, yeah, right. I, I'm not going to massage anyone's egos like that. But it's very weird in the writing rooms and writing, you know, pitching sketch comedy and stuff. Really weird when you, you feel the kind of the weather in the room, you know, it's just like, oh, everybody laughs at everything that Tripod writes or no one laughs at what the, you know, that, that person because we've heard that they might be on the way out and we're not sure about that person because they're kind of new and we've got to laugh at this person because they're related to that person and they're mm. out. It's, it's very weird and you come out exhausted. Well, I'm only just learning exhausted. all this now. Like I, and, and you say in my intro I mentioned Skid House. It's not probably the first thing I would have mentioned. But um, uh, when... I, my first ever writing job was for Skit House. I remember talking, having to sit in a room and pitch sketches as an 18-year-old to a room chock full. It must have been 23 mm. blokes in there. Mm. Like, mm. it was... I, that, I, and that, I've only just kind of remembered that now. That was terrifying. Yeah. It's an incredibly intimidating environment mm. uh, back in the background at television. Oh, on tele it's just, yeah... Uh, I mean, I miss the writers' rooms. You don't have writers' rooms as much <coughs> anymore because everybody writes remotely. But writers' rooms were really fantastic places and they were a great place to make connections and go on and do amazing things. But when I started on Tonight Live, everyone had been sacked the day before and we just walked in and there was tumbleweeds. There was one, um, there was one guy who hung over who was sacked the week that I was there, the first week that I was there. And as he walked out, his guy called Dave Marshall, he said, this is going to happen to you too. <laughs> and we all went on our breaks and then the executive producer, there's a great saying, they say, the, um, the director's sacked if the artistic vision's not being met, the producers are sacked if it's over budget and the writers are sacked because it's Tuesday. And we came, I came in for the following year, I think I've been on there four or five months, and there was twice as many writers as there were chairs in the room. And the guy who was uh, the, you know, the new creative consultant said, in six weeks, only half of you are going to be here. And it was just the most horrible, toxic environment to work I've in. I've been in a job where the head uh, writers said, come in here, we want you to see this. And because um, I was young and they were my mentors. Oh, yeah. They were positioning yeah. themselves with my mentor. And they sacked somebody in front of me. They said, we want you to see this. And they sacked them. And the guy threw a tantrum and I just felt ridiculous. But that was like, that was... Do you know what this is all reminding me of? It's reminding me of Game of Thrones. <laughs> How in the very first episode, they say to the little kid, watch this dude getting beheaded uh, because it, it will show you how it's done. But, yeah, it was The like... guy who um, passes the sentence must swing the sword. <laughs> but it was like being blooded. Didn't they say that'll turn you into a man? They made it... It was yeah, like, yeah, you'll, yeah. Go, you'll go into this room a boy and come out a man, is what they said, or something. And I did. You, the pubes were sprouting everywhere. It was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's... Yeah, it's... it's No, but I, I... You know, I like... I still... I don't regret any of my industry experience, and I've still got a long way to go. But it's, quite, it's interesting, though, because you've been, you know, given a lot of amazing opportunities because you're extraordinarily good, but you have formed a lot of your allegiances with women, a lot. I've got three sisters, yeah. you're, you know... Yeah, uh, and Alicia and, and, like, 
It's, I do not know any other guy working in comedy or even in writing at all who has such a huge proportionate of female, um, you know, co-creators. Yeah, well, that's, that's who I gravitate towards for, some, for whatever reason. And it, it might very well be my, my sisters. But, yeah, mm. I, I think I might be unique in that case. Mm. So have you ever caught yourself... Um, doing or saying or thinking things that you have seen older writers do or say or think and, and gone, oh, my God, I'm turning into one of them? <laughs> no, there's always the risk that you'll see, you know, because when you're growing, there's a point where you'll take any job that comes mm. and you'll see these older guys <clears throat> mentoring you or they're your boss and they, they are just so... Bitter, and they'll admit I'm bitter. Mm. Uh, and so you have to actively make choices and decisions to stop being bitter. You have to say, I have to leave this job now, I, or I, I am not doing. I made a vow last year to not do any more reality television, even though it pays like off the chart, like it's violently, it's so embarrassing, um, and it's incredibly hard work. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd said. No, no, because otherwise you just become that bitter prick mm. that I've seen. Mm. I don't want to be that guy. Mm. Uh, so so I'm, not, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but you have to actively avoid it because in a way it's inevitable you'll be bitter unless you actively avoid it. You will. I think the thing is that working particularly in commercial television, but in uh, c collaborative works, but, but I think particularly commercial television, where you go in, they like you because you're young and you're creative and you've got lots of ideas, but you just keep kind of being, you know, creatively footbound and, and bonsai and trellised. And it just, like, it just, like, you, you, it just goes against every single muscle inside you. And you get to a point, and I've seen this with people all the time, where they're just like, you just, you can't question it. You just can't think. You can't go, but this is crazy, but this is shit. You just have to do it. It's just like you're walking along the tightrope between the twin towers, just like going, don't look down, just look ahead, you know, because otherwise you'll fall. Yeah. And they are the ones that support it and enable that system the most because they've lost all their instinct. And you do, if you work long enough in commercial television, you do lose your instinct and you do lose your creativity because the, the letterbox that they want you to put, um, you know, get your letters through, keeps changing. Big, small, sideways, up, down. It's something that they're asking you for. They go, love that, more of that. You wrote six more sketches and they go, oh, we don't want that anymore. And they're right, well, we want this. But hang on, you said you didn't want that last week. Well, no, we want heaps of it now. And then you'll do it. And then they'll go, what happened to that, that, that other character that you did? You said, you said not right anymore. No, no, we want heaps of that. We want heaps of that. And it just, you go mad. You just have to just, you just have to be, you're just like a kid. You know the kids having their pixie photos taken at the supermarket? You know, they'd be the photo stand as you'd go and have it. And they'd be like this kid. And, they'd be, and the, the photographer would have like a ball and a, and a kind of a tweety thing. And go, come on, come on. You've got this kid kind of going, you know, where am I supposed to look? At the ball, at the tweety thing, at mum at the back? And, and that's what it becomes. Bitter, having said that, being bitter comedy types are some of the funniest, oh. most incredibly... Yeah cutting so smart, like so smart. And, and, and that may be where some of the bitterness comes from. 
Mm. I, I've still got some time to be bitter. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'll get there. There was one time, just quickly, where I was working on The Biggest Loser and AJ Rochester, who was the host at the time, uh, and I would whisper words into her ear and she would say them. Uh, that was the idea. And um, one time she said to me afterwards, she, she, said, <laughs> she, said, she said, your, your writing is very Shakespearean. And I said, oh, thanks. She said, I didn't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Well, but I think we are kind of out of time. We're probably quite over time. Um, was there any other, anyone else want to sort of questions, observations? Or you just need to go and have a drink and think about, <laughs> you know, sort of alpha males and how all those dreams about getting into television aren't going to actually happen? Who here has actually dreamed about getting into television? <laughs> <laughs> on, on, what side of, on what side of the camera? From what to what? Um, well, I think I had a pretty um, naive kind of, yeah, sort of idea about it. But, yeah, I think ABC was pretty much my... <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you see kind of these two colours and I used to do, I used to do this urban legend of um, what you were talking about before because, uh, yeah, I got a bit shocked and I was like, is this supposed to be that sort of pretend, like patriarchal? It's funny that what, what you've been brainwashed, you're going, but there's something back going, no, no, he's the good guy, no, no, he's the good guy, but going, but hang on, but no, 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 yeah. look over here. They want to be Daddy's favourite. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's, that's I, you know, I'm there. sorry, you've got no, but you you no, got to no. look at these and just kind of go. Would in any world would a woman be allowed to be like that? Well, would you, would we be able to see a woman that age on screen yeah, with that yeah. kind? Of... <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. She she is uh, a lone wolf. She has, she's a boy suck. She has turned feminism back 150 years. She has enabled to contribute, um, for that dysfunctional and discriminatory system to keep going. I mean, it's got so bad in some kind of parts of the world where I used to do work, where I just now will not go, I won't take the work anymore because I will not enable these systems by me being the odd female, either, you know, on air or, you know, or on screen or, or writing, to make them look less sexist. It's like, nah, fuck it. If you guys want to only just, like, have, you know, 
3% of your content or your screen time or your airtime taken up by a woman who's not nearly as well paid or has any control or power, oh, it's not going to be me. I, cannot, I can no longer enable these situations anymore. So I think we've all got to look at, you know, how we're enabling them as well. We might have to leave it there for tonight. We might have to do another one on Carrie Ann. <laughs> Catherine, if you want to come back and do a whole live in the studio on Carrie Ann. Um, but I'd just like to thank you all for being part of the panel tonight. And, and for giving us some pretty uh, interesting insights um, about what's on screen and also what's behind it. So thank you very much. Um, that's it for tonight. Thank you all for coming out. Um, there's some feedback forms on your way out if you had any other ideas for the program. Um, anything you'd like to see coming up. Uh, we're always uh, looking to hear your ideas at ACME, so feel free to fill one of those out on your way out. Um, but other than that, enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks. Thanks.